33, are rainless tracts, their Piedmont districts regularly develop permanent cultivation, here periodic rains or melting snows on the ranges fill the drainage streams, whose inundation often converts their alluvial banks into ready-made fields, the reliability of the water supply anchors here the winter villages of the nomads, which become centers of a limited agriculture, while the pasture lands beyond the irrigated strips support his flocks and herds, where the Piedmont of the Kuanlun Mountains draws a zone of vegetation around the southern rim of the Taklamakan Desert, Mongol shepherds raise some wheat, maize and melons as an adjunct to their cattle and sheep, but their tillage is often rendered intermittent by the salinity of the irrigating streams, along the base of the Tianshan Mountains. The felt yurt of the Gobi nomad gives place to turfy houses with wheat and rice fields, and orchards of various fruits, so that the whole Piedmont Highway from Hemi to Ayar can presents an alternation of desert and oasis settlement. Even the heart of Arid Arabia shows fertile oases under cultivation where the lofty meshed plateau, with its rain-gathering peaks over 5,000 feet high, varies its wide pastures with well-tilled valleys abounding in grain fields and date palm groves. Along the whole Saharan slope of the Atlas Piedmont a series of parallel wadis and, farther out in the desert, a zone of artesian wells, sunk to the underground bed of hidden drainage streams from the same range, form oases which are the seat of permanent agriculture and more or less settled populations. The Saharan highlands of Tabisti, whose mountains rise to 8.300 feet, condense a little rain and permit the Tibus to erase some grain and dates in the narrow valleys. The few and limited spots where the desert or steppe affords water for cultivation require artificial irrigation, the importation of plants, and careful tillage, to make the limited area support even a small social group. Hence they could have been utilized by man only after he had made considerable progress in civilization. Oasis agriculture is predominantly intensive. Gardens and orchards tend to prevail over field tillage. The restricted soil and water must be forced to yield their utmost while on the rainy or northern slope of the Atlas in Algiers and Tunis farms abound. On the Saharan Piedmont are chiefly plantations of vegetables, orchards and palm groves, in Fazan at the oasis of God, Barth found kitchen gardens of considerable extent, large palm groves, but limited fields of grain, all raised by irrigation, and in the flat hollow basin forming the oasis of Merzuk. He found also fig and peach trees, vegetables, Besides fields of wheat and barley cultivated with much labor, in northern Fazan, where the mountains back of Tripoli provide a supply of water, saffron and olive trees are the staple articles of tillage. The slopes are terraced and irrigated, laid out in orchards of figures pomegranates, almonds and grapes, while fields of wheat and barley border the lower courses of the wadis. In the Kapoases, or depressions of the Sahara, the village is always built on the slope because the alluvial soil in the basin is too precious to be used for house sites. The water supply in deserts and steppes, on which permanent agriculture depends, is so scant that even a slight diminution causes the area of tillage to shrink. Here a fluctuation of snowfall or rainfall that in a moist region would be negligible, has conspicuous or even tragic results. English engineers who examined the utilization of the Afghan streams for irrigation reported that the natives had exploited their water supply to the last drop, that irrigation converted the Kabul River and the Hiri Road at certain seasons of the year into dry channels. In the Turkoman steppes it has been observed that expanding tillage, by the multiplication of irrigation canals, increased the loss of water by evaporation, and hence diminished the supply. Facts like these reveal the narrow margin between food and famine which makes the uncertain basis of life for the steppe agriculturist. 
even slight desiccation contracts the volume and shortens the course of interior drainage streams, therefore it narrows the Piedmont zone of vegetation and the hem of tillage along the river banks. The previous frontier of field and garden is marked by abandoned hamlets and sand-buried cities, like those which border the dry beds of the shrunken Coton rivers of the Tarim Basin. The steppe regions in the New World as well as the old show great numbers of these ruins. Barth found them in the northern Sahara, dating from Roman days. They occur in such numbers in the Syrian desert, in the system of Persia, in Baluchistan, the Gobi, Taklamakan Desert, Turfan and the Lucknor Basin, that they indicate a marked but irregular desiccation of Central and Western Asia during the historical period. If a scant water supply places sedentary agriculture in arid lands upon an insecure basis, it makes the nomad sources of subsistence even more precarious. It keeps him persistently on low rations, while the drought that burns his pastures and dries up well and wadi brings him face to face with famine. The daily food of the Bedouin is meal cooked in sour camel's milk, to which bread and meat are added only when guests arrive. His moderation in eating is so great that one meal of a European would suffice for six Arabs. The daily food of the shepherd agriculturists on the Kuanlan margin of the Taklamakan desert is bread and milk. Meat is indulged in only three or four times a month. The Tartars, even in their days of widest conquest, showed the same habitual frugality. Their vintels are all things that may be eaten, for we saw some of them eat lice. The flesh of all animals dying a natural death is used as food, in summer it is sun-dried for winter use, because at that time the Tartars live exclusively on mare's milk which is then abundant. A cup or two of milk in the morning suffices till evening, when each man has a little meat. One ram serves as a meal for fifty or a hundred men. Bones are gnawed till they are burnished, so that no whit of their food may come to naught. Genghis Khan enacted that neither blood nor entrails nor any other part of a beast which might be eaten should be thrown away. Scarcity of food among the Tibetan and Mongolian nomads is reflected in their habit of removing every particle of meat from the bone when eating. A thin decoction of hot tea, butter and flour is their staple food. Many Turkoman nomads, despite outward appearance of wealth, eat only dried fish and get bread only once a month, while for the poor wheat is prohibited on account of its cost. The Saharan Tibis, usually on a starvation diet, eat the skin and powdered bones of their dead animals. The privations and hardships of life in the deserts and steppes discourage obesity. The Coconor Mongols of the High Tibetan Plateau are of slight build, never fat. The Bedouin's physical ideal of a man is spare, sinewy, energetic and vigorous, lean-sided and thin, as the Arab poet expresses it. The nomadic tribesmen throughout the Sahara, whether of Hamitic, Semitic or Negro race, show this type, and retain it even after several generations of settlement in the river valleys of the Sudan. The Bushmen, who inhabit the Kalahari Desert, have thin wiry forms and are capable of great exertion and privations, though the conquering propensities of nomadic tribes make large families desirable, in order to increase the military strength of the horde and though shepherd folk acquiring new and rich pastures develop patriarchal families, as did the Jews after the conquest of Canaan. Nevertheless the limited water and food supply of desert and grassland, as well as the relatively low-grade economy of pastoral life, impose an iron-bound restriction upon population, so that as a matter of fact patriarchal families are rare, when natural increase finds no vent in emigration and dispersal. Marriage among nomads becomes less fruitful. Artificial limitation of population occurs frequently among desert dwellers. In the Libyan oasis of Farafi, the inhabitants never exceed 80 males, a limit fixed by a certain Sheikh Merzik, 
Poverty of food supply explains the small number of children in the typical Turkoman family. Among the Coconor Tibetans, monogamy is the rule, polygamy the exception and confined to the few rich, while families never include more than two or three children. According to Burkhardt, three children constitute a large family among the Bedouins, much to the regret of the Bedouins themselves. Mohammedans though they are, few practiced polygamy, while polyandry and female infanticide existed in heathen times. Desert people seem to be naturally monogamous. The prevailing poverty, monotony and unreliability of subsistence in desert and steppe, as well as the low industrial status, necessitate trade with bordering agricultural lands. The Bedouins of Arabia buy flour, barley for horse feed, coffee and clothing, paying for them largely with butter and male colts. The northern tribes resort every year to the confines of Syria, when they are visited by peddlers from Damascus and Aleppo. The tribes from Hassa and the Nejd pasture land bring horses, cattle and sheep to the city of Kauite at the head of the Persian Gulf to barter for dates, clothing and firearms, and large encampments of them are always to be seen near this town. Arabia and the desert of Kader sold lambs, rams and goats to the markets of ancient Tyre. The pastoral tribes of ancient Judea in times of scarcity went to Egypt for grain, which they purchased either with money or cattle. The picture of Jacob's sons returning from Egypt to Canaan with their long lines of asses laden with sacks of corn is typical for pastoral nomads, so is their ultimate settlement, owing to protracted famine. In the delta land of Goshen, the Kyrgyz of the Russian and Asiatic steppes barter horses and sheep for cereals, fine articles of clothing and coarse wooden utensils in the cities of Bukhara and the border districts of Russia. Occasionally the land of the nomad yields other products than those of the flocks and herds, which enter therefore into their trade, such as the salt of the Sahara, secured at Tadini and Bilma, the gums of the Indus Desert, and balm of Gilead from the dry plateau east of Jordan, the systematic migrations of nomads, their numerous beasts of burden and the paucity of desert and steppe products determine pastoral tribes for the office of middlemen, and as such they appear in all parts of the world. The contrast of products in arid regions and in the bordering agricultural land, as also in the districts on opposite sides of these vast barriers, stimulates exchanges. This contrast may rest on a difference of geographic conditions, or of economic development, or both. The reindeer chukchis of Arctic Siberia take Russian manufactured wares from the fur stations on the Lena River to trade at the coast markets on Bering Sea for Alaskan pelts. The sons of Jacob, pasturing their flocks on the Judean plateau, saw a company of Ishmaelites come from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and bomb and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. This caravan of Arabian merchants purchased Joseph as a slave, a characteristic commodity in desert commerce from ancient times to the present. The predatory expeditions of nomads provide them with abundant captives, only few of which can be utilized as slaves in their pastoral economy. In the same way the Kyrgyz manage the caravan trade between Russia and Bukhara, sometimes adding captured travelers to their other wares. In ancient times Nubian shepherd folk acted as migrant middlemen between Egypt and Barrow near the junction of the Etpera River and the Nile, as did also the desert tribe of the Nasimones between Carthage and interior Africa. From remote ages an active caravan trade was carried on between the productive districts of Arabia Felix and the cities of Mesopotamia, Syria and Egypt. Mohammed himself was a caravan leader, in the faith which the established religious pilgrimage and commercial ventures were inextricably united, while to the mercantile spirit it gave a fresh and vigorous impetus. 
The caravan trade of the Sahara was first organized by Moorish and Arab tribes who dwelled on the northern margin of the desert, rearing herds of camels. These they hired to merchants for the journey between Morocco and Timbuktu, in return for cereals and clothing. Hence Morocco has been the chief customer of the great desert town near the Niger, and sends thither numerous caravans from Tanduf Tardin Morocco, Fez and Tafilay. Algiers dominates the less important route via the oasis of Twat, and Tripoli's that through Gautams to the busy towns in the Lake Chad Basin. If the camel is the ship of the desert, the market towns on the margin of the sandy wastes are the ports of the desert. Their bazaars hold everything that the nomad needs. Their suburbs are a shifting series of shepherd encampments or extensive caravanseries for merchant and pack animal, like the Amaradion of Timbuktu, which receives annually from 50 to 60,000 camels. Their industries develop partly in response to the demand of the desert or trans-desert population. The fine blades of Damascus reflected the Bedouin's need of the best weapon. Each city has its sphere of desert influence. The province of Mejd in Central Arabia is commercially subservient to Baghdad, Bozra, Kauai and Bahrain. The bazaars of Samarkand and Tashkent exist largely for the scattered nomads of Turkestan. Ancient Gaza and Ascalon fattened on the Egyptian trade across the desert of Shuru, as Petra. Bostra and Damascus on the thin but steady streams of nomad products flowing in from the Syrian desert. The abundant leisure of nomadic life encourages the beginning of industry, but rarely advances it beyond the household stage, owing to the thin, family-wise dispersion of population which precludes division of labor. Such industry as exists consists chiefly in working up the raw materials yielded by the herds. Among the Bedouins, blacksmiths and saddlers are the only professional artisans. These are regarded with contempt and are never a Bedouin stock. In the ancient world, industry reached its zero point in Arabia, and in modern times shows meager development there. On the other hand the Saharan Arabs developed an hereditary guild of expert well-makers, which seems to date back to remote times, and is held in universal honor. It is to the tent dwellers of the world, however, that we apparently owe the oriental rug. This triumph of the weaver's art seems to have originated among pastoral nomads who developed it in working up the wool and hair of their sheep, goats and camels, but it early became localized as a specialized industry in the towns and villages of irrigated districts on the borders of the grazing lands, where the nomads had advanced to sedentary life. Therefore in the period of the Caliphate, from 630 to 1258, we find these brilliant flowers of the loom, blooming like the Persian gardens, in Persian Farsistan, Kusistan, Kirman and Khorasan. We find them spreading the medieval fame of Shiraz, Tun, Mesht, Amal, Bukhara and Murth. The secret of this preeminence lay partly in the weaver's inherited aptitude and artistic sense for this textile work, derived from countless generations of shepherd ancestors, partly in their proximity to the finest raw materials, whose quality was equaled nowhere else, because it depended upon the character of the pasturage probably also upon the climatic conditions affecting directly the flocks and herds. A map showing the geographical distribution of eastern rug making reveals the relation of the industry to semi-arid or saline pastures, and makes the mind revert at once to the blankets of artistic design and color, woven by the Navajo Indians of our own rainless southwest. Rug weaving in the old world reached its finest development in countries like Persia, Turkestan, western Afghanistan, Baluchistan, Western India and the plateau portions of Asia Minor, countries where the rainfall varies from 10 to 20 inches or even less. See map page 484, where nomadism claims a considerable part of the population, 
and where the ancestry of all traces back to some of the great shepherd races, like Turkomans and Tartars, these peoples are hereditary specialists in the care, classification, and preparation of wools. Weavers of rugs form an industrial class in the cities of Persia and Asia Minor, where they obey largely the taste of the outside world in regard to design and color, whereas the nomads, weaving for their own use, adhere strictly to native colors and designs. Their patterns are tribal property, each differing from that of the other, and though less artistic than those of the urban workers, are nevertheless interesting and consistent, while the nomads' intuitive sense of color is fine. The principles of design and color which these tent dwellers had developed in their weaving, they applied, after their conquest of agricultural lands, to stone and produced the mosaic, to architecture and produced the Alhambra and the Taj Mahal, whether Saracens of Spain or Turkoman conquerors of India, they were ornamentists whose contribution to architecture was decoration, working in marble, stone, metals or wood, they wrought always in the spirit of color and textile design. Rather than in the spirit of form, the walls of their mosques, palaces and tombs reproduce the beauty of the rugs once screening the doors of their felt tents. The gift of color they passed on to the west, first through the Moors of Sicily and Spain, later through Venetian commerce. Their influence can be seen in the exquisite mosaic decoration in the cloister of Montreal of once Saracenic Palermo, and in the Ducal Palace and Street Marks Cathedral of Beauty-Loving Venice. This has been almost their sole contribution to the art of the world. Pastoral nomads can give political union to civilized peoples, they can assimilate and spread ready-made elements of civilization, but to originate or develop them they are powerless. Between the art, philosophy and literature of China on the one side, and of the settled districts of Persia on the other, lies the cultural sterility of the Central Asia Plateau. Its outpouring hordes have only in part acquired the civilization of the superior agricultural peoples whom they have conquered from Kazan and Constantinople to Delhi. From Delhi to Pekin they have added almost nothing to the local culture. Deserts and steppes lay on a resting hand on progress. Their tribes do not develop, neither do they grow old. They are the eternal children of the world. Genuine nomadic people show no alteration in their manners, customs or mode of life from millennium to millennium. The interior of the Arabian desert reveals the same social and economic status. Whether we take the descriptions of Moses or Mohammed or Burkhardt or more recent travelers, the Bedouins of the Nubian steppes adhere strictly to all their ancient customs, and reproduce today the pastoral nomadism of Abraham and Jacob. Genealogies were not more important to the biblical house of David and stem of Jesse than they are for the modern Kiagai's tribesmen, who as a little child learns to recite the list of his ancestors back to the seventh generation. The account which Herodotus gives of the nomads of the Russian steppes agrees in minute details with that of Strabo written five centuries later, with that of William de Rubrukis in 1253, and with modern descriptions of Kalmuk and Kiagai's life. The gauchos or Indian pastoral half-braids of the Argentine plains were found by Wapius in 1870 to accord accurately with Avara's description of them at the end of the 18th century. The restless tenants of the grasslands come and go but their type never materially changes. Their culture is stationary amid persistent movement. Only when here or there in some small and favored spot they are forced to make the transition to agriculture, or when they learn by long and close association with sedentary nations the lesson of drudgery and progress, do the laws of social and economic development begin to operate in them. As a rule, they must first escape partly or wholly the environment of their pasture lands either by immigration or by the intrusion into their midst of alien tillers of the soil, 
but while the migrant shepherd originates nothing, he plays an historical role as a transmitter of civilization. Asiatic nomads have sparsely disseminated the culture of China, Persia, Egypt and Yemen over large areas of the world. The Semite shepherds of the Red Sea deserts, through their merchants and conquerors, long gave to the dark Sudan the only light of civilization which it received. Mohammed, a Bedouin of the Ishmaelite tribe, caravan leader on the desert highways between Mecca and Syria, borrowed from Jerusalem the simple tenets of a monotheistic religion, and spread them through his militant followers over a large part of Africa and Asia. The deserts and grasslands breed in their sons certain qualities and characteristics courage, hardihood, the stiff-necked pride of the freeman, vigilance, wariness, sense of locality, keen powers of observation stimulated by the monotonous, featureless environment, and the consequent capacity to grasp every detail. Though robbery abroad is honorable and marauder a term with which to crown a hero, theft at home is summarily dealt with among most nomads. The property of the unlocked tent and the far-ranging herd must be safeguarded. The Tartars maintained a high standard of honesty among themselves and punished theft with death. Wide dispersal in small groups is reflected in the diversity of dialects among desert peoples, in the practice of hospitality, whether among Bedouins of the Najd, Kyrgyz of the Central Asia Plateau, or semi-nomadic Boers of South Africa, in the persistence of feuds and of the duty of blood revenge, which is sanctioned by the Koran. Isolation tends to breed among nomads pride of race and a repugnance to intermixture. The ideal of the pastoral Israelites was a pure ethnic stock, protected by stern inhibition of intermarriage with other tribes. Therefore, Moses enjoined upon them the duty of exterminating the peoples of Canaan whom they dispossessed, while the urban Arabs show a medley of breeds, dashed with a strain of Negro blood. Among the nomad Bedouins, mixture is exceptional and is regarded as a disgrace. The same thing is true among the nomad Arabs of Algeria, and there it has placed a stumbling block in the way of the French colonial administration, by preventing the appearance of half-breeds who might bridge the gap between the colonials and natives, where pastoral Semites have settled in agricultural lands, intermixture on a wide scale has followed, as in the Sudan from Niger to Nile, but even here, when a tribe or clan has retained a strictly pastoral life in the grassland, and has held itself aloof from the agricultural districts of the Negro villages, relatively pure survivals are to be found, as among the Kawarbush Fulani of Bornu. On the other hand, the Hausa, a migrant trading folk of mingled Arab and Negro blood, spread northward along the Trans-Saharan caravan route to the oasis of air before the 14th century, and there had infused into the local Berber stock a strong Negro strain, among the nomads of Central Asia. One wave of race movement has so often followed and overtaken another, that it has produced a confused blending of breeds. The mixtures are so numerous that pure types are exceptional, and the exclusiveness of the desert Semites disappears. Though all these desert-born characteristics and customs had a certain interest for the sociologist, they possess only minor importance in comparison with the religious spirit of pastoral nomads, which is always fraught with far-reaching historical results. The evidence of history shows us that there is such a thing as a desert-born genius for religion. How can Gabin testify to the deeper religious feeling of the Buddhist nomads of the Central Asia plateaus, as compared with the lowland Chinese? The three great monotheistic religions of the world are closely connected in their origin and development with the deserts of Syria and Arabia. The area of Mohammedism embraces the steppe zone of the Old World from Senegambia and Zanzibar in Africa to the Indus, Tarim and the Upper Obi together with some well-watered lands on its margins, 
It comprises in this territory a variety of races Negroes, Hamites, Semites, Iranians, Indo-Aryans, and a long list of Mongoloid tribes. Here is a psychological effect of environment. The dry, pure air stimulates the faculties of the desert dweller, but the featureless, monotonous surroundings furnish them with little to work upon. The mind, finding scant material for sustained logical deduction, falls back upon contemplation. Intellectual activity is therefore restricted, narrow, and productive, while the imagination is unfettered but also unfed. First and last, these shepherd folk receive from the immense monotony of their environment the impression of unity. Therefore all of them, upon outgrowing their primitive fetish and nature worship, gravitate inevitably into monotheism. Their religion is in accord with their whole mental makeup, it is a growth, a natural efflorescence. Therefore it is strong. Its tenets form the warp of all their intellectual fabrics, permeate their meager science and philosophy, animate their more glorious poetry. It has moreover the fanaticism and intolerance characterizing men of few ideas and restricted outlook upon life. Therewith is bound up a spirit of propaganda. The victories of the Jews in Palestine, Syria and Philistia were the victories of Jehovah, the conquests of Saladin were the conquests of Allah, and the domain of the Caliphate was the dominion of Islam. Illustration Distribution of religions in the old world world map showing distribution of Christians, Mohammedans, Brahmins, Buddhists, and heathen. The desert everywhere, sooner or later, drives out its brood, ejects its people and their ideas, like those exploding seed pods which at a touch cast their seed abroad. The religious fanaticism of the shepherd tribes gives that touch, herein lies its historical importance. Mohammedism, fierce and militant conduced to those upheavals of migration and conquest which since the 7th century have so often transformed the political geography of the old world. The vast empire of the Caliphate, from its starting point in Arabia, spread in 80 years from the Oxus River to the Atlantic Ocean. The rapid rise and spread between 1745 and 1803 of the Wadhabi clan and sect, the Puritans of Islam which resulted for a time in their political and religious domination of much of Arabia from their home in the Najd recalls the stormy conquests of Mohammed's followers. Islam is today a persistent source of ferment in Algeria, the Sahara, and the Sudan. On the other hand, Buddhism serves to cement together the diverse nomadic tribes of the Central Asia plateaus, and keep them in spiritual subjection to the Grand Lama of Hassa. The Chinese government makes political use of this fact by dominating the Lama and employing him as a tool to secure quiet on its long frontier of contact with its restless Mongol neighbors. Moreover the religion of Buddha has restrained the warlike spirit of the nomads, and by its institution of celibacy has helped keep down population below the boiling point. Compare maps pages 484 and 513. The faith of the desert tends to be stern, simple and austere. The indulgence which Mohammed promised his followers in paradise was only a reflex of the deprivation under which they habitually suffered in the scant pastures of Arabia. The lavish beauty of the heavenly city epitomized the ideals and dreams of the desert stamp too. The active, simple, and cramped life of the grasslands seems essential to the preservation of the best virtues of the desert bread. These disappear largely in sedentary life. The Bedouin rots when he takes root. City life contaminates, degrades him. His virile qualities and his religion both lose their best when he leaves the desert. Contact with the cities of Philistia and the fertile plains of the Canaanites with their sensual agricultural gods, demoralized the Israelites. The prophets were always calling them back to the sterner code of morals and the purer faith of their days of wandering. 
Jeremiah in despair holds up to them as a standard of life the national injunction of the pastoral Rishabites. Neither shall ye build house nor sow corn nor plant vineyard, but all your days ye shall dwell in tents. The ascent in civilization made havoc with Hebrew morals and religion, because ethics and religion are the finest and latest flower of each cultural stage. Transition shows the breaking down of one code before the establishment of another. Judaism has always suffered from its narrow local base, even when transplanted to various parts of the earth. It has remained a distinctly tribal religion. Intense conservatism in doctrine and ceremonial it still bears as the heritage of its desert birth. Islam too shows the limitations of its original environment. It embodies a powerful appeal to the peoples of arid lands, and among these it has spread and survives as an active principle. But it belongs to an arrested economic and social development lacks the germs of moral evolution which Christianity, born in the old stronghold of Hebraic monotheism, but impregnated by all the cosmopolitan influences of the Mediterranean Basin and the Imperium Romanum, amply possesses, chapter XB mountain barriers and their passes the important characteristic of plains is their power to facilitate every phase of historical movement, that of mountains is their power to retard, arrest, or deflect it, man, as part of the mobile envelope of the earth. Like air and water feels always the pull of gravity. From this he can never fully emancipate himself. By an output of energy he may climb the steepest slope. But with every upward step the ascent becomes more difficult. Owing to the diminution of warmth and air and the increasing tax upon the heart. Maintenance of life in high altitudes is always a struggle. The decrease of food resources from lower to higher levels makes the passage of a mountain system an ordeal for every migrating people or marching army that has to live off the country which it traverses. Mountains therefore repel population by their inaccessibility and also by their harsh conditions of life. While the lowlands attract it, both in migration and settlement, historical movement, when forced into the upheft areas of the earth, avoids the ridges and peaks, seeks the valleys and passes where communication with the lowlands is easiest. High massive mountain systems present the most effective barriers which man meets on the land surface of the earth. To the S.